If you're a developer, you've probably worked with an API or application programming interface. An API is a set of rules for how to communicate with an application or device. For example, when you build an app and want to use Stripe to handle payments or use Slack to deliver notifications, it's APIs that make this possible. Handling communication between different applications was historically challenging, but with the growth of cloud computing and the need for smooth interoperability, APIs have become standard and are now often considered essential to make a company accessible and visible. The growth of APIs is about to accelerate even more because of generative AI. The reason is that good APIs will be needed so AIs can write code to stitch together multiple systems. Postman is a popular application and platform for building and using APIs, and they recently released their 2023 State of the API Report. Joyce Lin is the head of developer relations at Postman, and she joins the show today to talk about the history of APIs, why APIs have exploded in popularity, and what the future looks like. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Joyce, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, it's good to see you again. Thanks so much for being here. Let's first have you introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And how'd you get to where you are today? Well, it's very nice to be here. My name is Joyce Lynn. I work in developer relations at Postman. I think you're familiar with Postman, right, Sean? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's an API platform, huge developer base. I'm happy to talk about anything API related or just general broad developer related. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into APIs today, a little bit of history, a little bit of some of the you know new API trends that are going around. And I think a good place to start would be kind of going back in time a little bit. So the concept of an API has been around for a long, a long time. You know, I think even when I was doing sort of some research for this, getting ahead of, you know, the types of things that we want to talk about, I was actually surprised that the whole concept of an API was actually born in the 1950s. And it was a just conceptual thing. And it was this idea of like facilitating communication between two computers, which is essentially what you're doing with an API today. But you know, a lot of times I think when we think about APIs, we're thinking about either the web or maybe cloud. And if we kind of look at primarily the focus of web APIs is something that we kind of think of as like the modern API, where did all that, you know, type of thinking and technology begin? That's interesting. I was just recording another TikTok and talking about the very first modern web API. You were talking about the 1950s. It was much later than that. I'll let you guess to see if you can guess what year the first modern API was introduced. Do you have remotely any guesses? I'll say 2000. Very good guess. Yes. So 2000 is when the principles of REST was introduced. And so before that, APIs had been around for a really long time. But in my TikTok, I was like, the first modern web API. And somebody's like, well, actually, you know, (laughs) RPC calls have been around for a really long time. And indeed, they have programming language APIs. But when you're talking about web APIs, and specifically, you're talking about HTTP or like REST APIs. Yeah, 2000. Very good guess. Yeah, I remember even in the early days of my engineering, like RPC was something that we would do in order to connect two different types of programming languages together. It's like, how do I make Java call a library that was written in C++ or something like that? And we had very rudimentary tools available to us at that point. And obviously, we've come a long way since then. And I think everybody kind of has a different perspective on, you know, 
maybe what even constitutes uh, you know a web api or something like that and that's probably where you get into these debates of like you know so the person's like actually you know this actually started you know 20 years ago because this type of technology was introduced in i don't know 1979 and it, it led to this and this and this and this so it's kind of a gray area in, in a lot of ways in terms of like the definitive timeline for some of this stuff and you're kind of remarking that wow we've had apis for a bazillion years it's been around for so long and i'm looking at some of the dates for these like really popular modern style apis and it's i mean you know maybe dating myself but it doesn't seem like so long ago when we're introducing some of these newfangled technologies and then to see the amount of adoption they've gained i think it's happened really fast mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so going back though to the early days of web apis around like 2000 like, what were the technologies that were available to people building APIs back then? Yeah, so you were talking about remote procedure calls, and there have been a bunch of, like, other, I think, service-oriented architecture was kind of big around then. But Roy Fielding, you know, introduced REST principles running on HTTP. And so, like, I think that really captured the minds of a lot of people because it was about reducing complexity, right, which was different from some of the other protocols that were going around. And then also just it it being standardized so that any machine can talk to any machine in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think REST didn't really come on my radar until much, much later than like the, those original like papers. I think it was his PhD work or something like that, that REST came out of originally, but I probably didn't actually register it until like, I don't know, like the late aughts of like 2009 or something like that, 2008 or something like that, when I started to consume APIs that were, you know, JSON based and REST API based. But before that, you know, a lot of you know, the early days of what I was dealing with. And I'm sure many people that, you know, were doing engineering in the early 2000s, like XML, SOAP-based, these kind of like really gross interfaces to try to like interact with. They were just like cumbersome to try to deal with. And then you were always doing a lot of work to sort of transpose some of those, like the object structure defined in XML into something that could be actually like an object in, you know, whatever your programming language of choice was. So, You mentioned the idea that one of the reasons REST sort of caught on and was interesting was the simplicity of it. So can you kind of maybe give a little bit of background of like what some of those principles were that led to REST being something that someone saw as simple and something that was actually innovative? Yeah. So, I mean, if you've ever seen, I wish we could do like uh, screenshots here, but if you can like just put up a snapshot of what XML looks like versus what, you know, an endpoint looks like. For REST, I think you mentioned JSON. JSON was like a quick follow after REST was introduced. So just even picture in your mind's eye what JSON looks like. It's machine readable, yes, but it's also very human readable. And then also just understanding like how the REST API is structured, the way the paths are formed and to access the different resources, I think is also very intuitive and human readable. And I think that's part of the reason why it really took off. But it was also timing of when the internet was starting to become a lot more popular, third-party APIs. And so if you need a standardized protocol that you're not just kind of talking about within your team or with like one or two other major agencies or companies that you're working with, if you're just talking about third-party developers, I think that's another reason why REST took off just because of the timing. Yeah, and I think that's also as sort of like a secondary 
impact thing was that the languages that made it easier to essentially work with things like JSON and also work with Rust APIs, they caught on and became more popular languages than some of the languages that were sort of harder to map to like a JSON structure or to the way that the you know REST is is set up to essentially allow you to, you know, get lists you know, delete these types of things. If that was like cumbersome, then it was like, well, why should I, you know, continue to use this language versus this other language that's kind of just set up where it feels like a native thing. And you were alive and kicking like around this time. I didn't realize that, but I had to do research. <laughs> I wasn't in technology at the time and I'm, I had to do research. I've, I've worked with SOAP. I've worked with XML. Corba? Yeah. Have you worked with Corba? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just very, very... And I don't know if they were perceived as complex at the time, but just in comparison, REST APIs was a lot more simple. And then a lot more people were getting into the field, obviously, due to demand. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was kind of like what was available at the time. But even then, from my own perspective, like I was a college student sort of working with some of those like early form, like SOAP and WSDL files and all this sort of stuff. And they it was really cool that you could make these different applications talk together, but it was also very brittle and rigid and kind of hard to hard to work with, which just added a lot of friction and pain to the whole thing. And I think when you have friction and pain, a lot of times people look for ways of like getting around it and you know circumventing it, or they just don't adopt it and they do something else instead, which becomes like a barrier of essentially scale. I mean, I was thinking about that. You were saying it's like, I don't know the word, but it's like you were talking about it being brittle and the whole concept of rest is so that any server could talk to any other server in the world. So like you're essentially decoupled everything, right? So then it's a lot more scalable. Then you can like draw a lot more, connect a lot more dots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another, you know, fairly early type of innovation in web APIs was, you know, protobufs, which came out of Google. You know, I worked for Google for a number of years and during my time there, like everything is basically started with a proto. Like that's the form of every like eng design work that you're doing. And it seems like, like proto buffs hasn't been something that's you know caught on the same way that something like rest has i guess like what is the sort of difference in value of the proto buff from your understanding and why hasn't it maybe been caught on more widely yeah and i found this out during research but like proto buff was introduced early early on it hasn't come across my radar until like more recently when distributed systems have become a lot more popular but i think it was like 2001 Introduced the same year JSON was introduced, right? So why did Protobuf win over JSON potentially? And again, in your mind's eye, picture what JSON looks like. Protobuf is a little bit more complex, a little bit more of a learning curve, and it was precisely better for reasons that shouldn't become really in demand until probably a few years later. So really complex distributed systems, microservices, a lot more of uh, those at-scale systems where efficiency, performance all of that is a lot more important. And then now it's becoming a little bit more popular, but even still it has some headwinds, right? So we're talking about like Google inventing it because Google has those kind of problems, but not every startup is going to have those problems. But it's like, how much tooling do you have that support HTTP too? And I'm talking about gRPC now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and this is like, you know, 20 years ago at this point. So the kind of scale problems that Google was having back then, like very few companies in the world, if any, were reaching that level of scale back then. And so they had to invent a lot of the tools and technologies that essentially allow them to meet that scale, meet that demand. And I guess like, you know, Protobuf and gRPC and these types of technologies came along with that. But now there's, you know, if you're essentially building a startup today, 
that even if you had not necessarily scales of Google's challenges, but you still have scale problems, a lot has happened in terms of technology innovation that's available to you today to reach those scale demands that weren't available 20 years ago. So your only solution might not be, or your optimization might not be to go to protobuf and grpc you might be able to stick with you know json and rest and then scale in other ways by you know scaling horizontally or vertically across like the public cloud with you know servers and so forth and i'd have to look up the actual market adoption there's a ton of interest any developer that hears this i think the stat is that grpc is 7 to 10 times faster than rest ooh so cool let me look it up but the adoption is still in the low i want to say like low tens of percentages. And so it's just like, not everyone wants to like overthrow their system and implement that new technology, but it's also kind of tough and finding people that know gRPC well and all the systems and processes in place for it is the second question that you need to answer. Yeah. When I was looking at the state of APIs report from this year from Postman, I think it said that you know nearly 60% of respondents in 2023 had never heard of Protobuf. So that's a pretty big group of people who are interested enough in APIs to be responding to a survey that Postman puts out about APIs that hasn't heard of protobuf. Yeah, but when they do, they are interested, but then even still, they're not adopting it, like mm-hmm. except for maybe like some POC, right? And then what about GraphQL, which you know came out of Meta? So that, I mean, they essentially were in a similar place where they were hitting scale issues well beyond what most companies could even imagine. They had to innovate and create something new there, and it came out with GraphQL. Can you talk a little bit about essentially the differences between GraphQL and some of these other technologies that we've been talking about? And then what was sort of the problem that we're trying to address with that? So if you compare GraphQL to, like, let's just say REST APIs, you're talking about with REST APIs, you're overfetching, underfetching. It's just part of traversing different endpoints together, what you need, assembling it on the client side. And GraphQL is a client proposed way of retrieving that data. So when you, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Meta created GraphQL because of their mobile apps, right? So if you can minimize the number of round trips required to have somebody pleasantly scrolling on the mobile apps, then that's going to be a lot more performance. Sounds great in theory, but what a lot of public APIs ended up doing was building GraphQL wrappers around their HTTP APIs, right? So then you actually have a more pleasant developer experience, but you don't have any performance benefits, at least not on the tail end. So then I kind of saw a bunch of larger companies build GraphQL into their data layer, just like for internal tools, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have a lot of the enhancements and benefits there, but maybe we didn't get the large scale adoption, at least on the public API side. Are there certain types of applications or APIs that are better suited for GraphQL? I don't know. I mean, anything that requires jumping many jumps across many types of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would imagine also like essentially if you, the variance in the type of information that you need about an object changes, then GraphQL is probably a good fit there. Like if some instances you only need, you know, two out of a hundred fields to describe some sort of object versus other instances where you need 25, then you want to have you don't want to create like a unique endpoint in REST for every to pull all those different variations versus using something like GraphQL where you can specify which parts of the object I want to return. Well, if you do want to learn a little bit more about GraphQL and gRPC protocol shoutouts, both of those summits are coming up, I think, in the next, maybe this month mm. in the Bay Area. Okay, good to know. We are in the midst of event season, so there's like yeah. events well, going GraphQL, on. Well, GraphQL, huge summit, and gRPC, I think there's only one or two conferences in the world dedicated to gRPC. So yeah, definitely don't miss it if you're interested. 
No, cool. Yes. So, you know, still taking a look at sort of the last, you know, 20 years of this, you know, history around web APIs, what were some of the other, you know, technologies that came along besides, you know, the things that we've already talked about? This is like asking what's new in tech, Joyce. <laughs> in your opinion, in the last 20 years, what's new in tech? We could talk about like Web 3. We could talk about Web 4. We could talk about IoT. IoT is sweeping. Like it's on my mind right now because there's other protocols that are very IoT specific. Let's narrow down the query a little bit more. Let's, or you tell me something that's interesting to you. For example, Open API. Yeah. So open API has been very popular probably over the last, let's just say three to five years. And people are interested in this. I would say like, I would say anybody who wants interoperability with like partner agencies or partner companies, or they're operating APIs at scale are probably already using open API as a standard for their API design and development. There's a whole host of people also using open API to auto-generate things like mocks, docs, just tests. They're using it to auto-generate, and so they're backing into open API, but it's an open source standard that some of the big companies came together and said, hey, we need more interoperability, right? We're talking about REST being a really good way to be interoperable, but it's not super opinionated. There's the principles of REST, but you can implement it any way you want. And so within the company, as well as when you're operating with other components or other APIs, open API is a way to really iron out those interfaces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what about in terms of the things that were happening in industry that led to this explosion in APIs? Like now, you know, there's all these, you know, essentially the, there's like, you know, software is eating the world. And then, you know, now we're in like, I don't know, the world of Gen AI, but maybe somewhere in between there, APIs were eating the world to some degree. So like there's been this huge transformation in you know the last 15 years where you know every company in tech has become an API company to some degree. What what were some of the things that led to this world where everybody was essentially building APIs? Well, back when I started getting into tech, and this was many, many years after you, Sean, but like <laughs> there were phones, right? So mobile was becoming a big thing. Social, like there's a bunch of new companies. So right when, let's see, when was the first tech boom in the early 2000s? Yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, there was like a huge revolution, right? So when people are talking about digital transformation, one is accessibility of data, but one was like being able to accommodate all of these devices, these new devices. And then cloud, like even a short, like eight years ago, I was talking to people and they were like, I don't know. I don't know if we can be on one of the major cloud providers because, you know, it's not allowed at my company, but now everyone and their mother is on a major cloud. We've had regulatory pushes, right? So GDPR in Europe saying like, you need to make this information accessible. Open banking saying you need to make this accessible to other parties. I feel like it's just getting faster and faster. AI, you brought up open API, right? So open AI's way to create a new plugin is through an open API. I'm saying a lot of words there, but <laughs> I mean, all large language models, when they're discovering new information, it's through API. So if you do not have an API, you are invisible to LLMs. And so like everything that's hitting tech is just creating more and more demand for you to have an API. And if you don't have an API, I think that's where it's really troublesome for your company or your organization or your project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if we look at something like 
OpenAI and essentially how much that's become like part of the zeitgeist and, and essentially like my entire Twitter feed is basically like generative AI and all this thing these days. You know, I think a big part of that, and there's a lot of things that went into their success and, and why it caught fire, but a big part of that is the fact that they have an easy to use consumable API that then allowed all kinds of people that work in engineering to essentially build all kinds of like cool creative applications that served different types of needs, leveraging AI technologies. And those became essentially the front end for this like big movement in AI that we're seeing. Yeah. And I think the latest state of the API report from Postman, the one that just launched, I think just published a month or so ago, is talking about the API revenue, right? So I'm seeing a shift now where People are feeling like I need to have an API so that we can address the people, the partners that want something, but we're not ready to offer it yet. So here's an API so that you can build your things, kind of like holding things off. And it's a layer on top of a larger system. But some companies are launching as API only, right? The only thing they offer is an API and then becoming huge honking companies that are only API. And so now it's kind of like people are hiring API product managers. That's a new title now, where if you're at an established company, it's really hard to change your way to think about that API because it used to be just an ad hoc last minute thing that somebody thought about, oh, is this functionality available through API too? But now it's just, let's think about the business strategy of our API and how much money you can make off of it, how much value you can add to your users. Yeah, and I think it also introduces new types of product challenges where if you're a product manager building you know, a product that has a front-end application and you change the button or like, I don't know, the menu item name from, I don't know, A to B, you're not breaking anyone's experiences. They can still click on B. But if you change an API endpoint from A to B, then everybody who's adopted that API, you basically broke their usage of that API. So then you have to think about, you know, breaking changes, how do you handle that? What's a deprecation cycle? Like all of this type of stuff that is new that you know people hadn't really experienced as product managers and as organizations before. We're seeing that this is super relevant and timely. We just saw that with Twitter API. We just saw that with Reddit API. Twitter for sure, they deprecated it so quickly within like 30 days. Entire organizations like functioning companies with multiple employees had the sunset within like 30 days. That's like shocking, that level of deprecating something that companies and partners have come to rely on. Yeah, in the early days of Google Cloud, I think you know one of the areas they really struggled with was breaking changes on their APIs. And they've had to really change the way that they think about building APIs for enterprise customers and people consuming it. Because you can't just go and rip out whole APIs and expect people to you know change in 30 days that are in massive organizations that have a product roadmap that maybe is already set out for six to 12 months. Like that is very, very disruptive. And, and I think that's kind of the mindset change when it comes to building API first companies or thinking about API as a product is you have to kind of understand what is the impact of these these changes on your customers and understand that the API itself is essentially the product that you're delivering. And then, I mean, that's one side of things. And then the other side is like, I I think I talked to Stripe. Stripe has a publicly stated policy where, where they won't deprecate any endpoint. So they're supporting stuff for like at least a decade after it's really kind of been, you know, not really in use internally anymore. So where is the right way to do things from a developer experience standpoint? Certainly it's not 30 days and it's probably not super feasible for every organization to support things for decades on end indefinitely. Yeah, and that's the Microsoft problem. If you look at like 
old versions of Windows. They basically, each version of Windows was a build on the prior version of Windows, and they they wanted to essentially have backward compatibility with all these super old machines. And then you have Apple on the flip side where they, you know, were willing to essentially break backwards compatibility in the spirit of innovation and creating a better experience. And there's always this like, you know, trade-off, like you're saying, yeah, Yeah, tension, where it's, you know, essentially supporting old systems can be a barrier of innovation, eventually lead to a lot of confusion and essentially like tech debt that you're like holding on to as an organization. But you also don't want to essentially make people really angry because you're, you know, ripping and pulling things out all the time in the spirit of innovation. In terms of API adoption, you know, it's it's a, it's certainly a, like a global phenomenon, but is it something that you see more popular in certain parts of the world? Are people in, for example, Europe, where you have things like GDPR, focused on certain aspects of, you know, pushing API standards, or is there essentially cultural difference in terms of how people think about APIs? That's an interesting question. And at a super high level, let's let's circle in on like what the true answer should be. But at a super high level, APIs are used globally, or at least anywhere where there's connectivity, right? So if you have data, internet, you are consuming APIs for sure. If you have consumers that are consuming, then you're probably producing as well. There's different types of APIs that I see, like, of course, like, say you're in an underserved area. So say there aren't a lot of banks. I have finance on the brain right now, like microfinance, right? Microfinance does not exist for the most part in the US, but it exists in underserved countries where there aren't brick and mortar like banks, let's say. And so you see a new flavor of microfinance APIs cropping up. As far as volume, I don't see a volume difference. I see a difference in people willing to pay for like APIs, price sensitivity, but that's to be expected. But consumption and production, I don't see trend, regional trends. So we talked a little bit about the, you know, we were mentioned a couple of times the state of the API report, and there's the new one that came out a couple of months ago. What are some of the most popular third-party APIs that are, are, exist right now? And how has that changed over time? I don't know if we published this in the state of the API, but there's another list that we published that got a lot of attention. Let me see if I can't <laughs> find it really quick. But off the top of my head, I know like Salesforce is number one. I know very popular, you already mentioned Microsoft. Microsoft has a whole suite of tools. So they have a graph API that connects everything together. Notion, Notion is super popular in terms of consumer adoption, but also wanting to hack it, right? Wanting to build automations or little bots. That must be something that's like a newer one than if you looked five years ago, Notion probably wasn't on that list, but I bet Salesforce was. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, where Salesforce probably had an accumulated developer community, whereas Notion kind of was converts from consumer to developer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think like types of APIs, the communication, any messaging API is really popular because of the things that you can build, like super easy notifications and automations. Right. Yeah. Things like Twilio API, for example. In the 2022 report, it said that developers are spending most of their time on APIs. And with all the development that's happening in generative AI space right now, where there's a lot of innovation that's actually happening in developer workflows, like with code assistants and SDK generators, bug identifiers, documentation, all this kind of stuff that's going on. How do you think that this might impact the time that developers are spending on APIs if essentially we're able to create tools that you know, can auto-generate some of this stuff or do other types of, you know, take off some of that 
work that a developer is normally going to be doing in terms of building and designing APIs? That's an interesting stat. I think it's like more than 50% of your developer time is spent on APIs. And that's been the case year over year. And it's actually only grown. And so you're thinking about productivity tools and being able to take some of that off the developer's plate. But again, that number is only growing. So I think it's very similar to you were talking about generative AI and prompt engineer becoming a new field. I think it's going to take the types of manual, repetitive, like head bashing, like work off of your plate, but I'm not sure if it'll take overall amount of time off your plate. I think it will change what you're doing. So you'll probably, hopefully, spend less time debugging, reading through documentation. You'll have NLP prompts that then, you know, generate something and then you'll be tweaking it here and there, but you'll still be working on the APIs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it'll change the nature of the API work. So maybe you have a little bit more time to think about the design and maybe even, you know, efficiency or scale or, you know, more complex challenges that require, you know, a deeper level of expertise than essentially doing the the road work around like, you know, debugging and maybe writing tests and automating tests and, you know, integrating into a CICD pipeline and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And we've already seen like some of those cool tools that you're talking about, like just auto-generating documentation, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to have the metadata, but is the metadata in a very consistent format going to be enough to enable the developer to get done what they want to get done. And I mean, I brought up prompt engineer because it's what made me think of it. Prompt engineering is super hot right now, but it's, you still need to know how the underlying tech works to be, have really good prompts. And a lot of people think that prompt engineering is only kind of a finite lifespan of being a prompt engineer before something else new is going to usurp that. And so just understanding how systems work and the things, the levers that you can tweak is really going to be where it's at. And then so if everyone can level up, then you're still spending the same amount of time working, but you're working on stuff that hopefully is more enjoyable. How else do you think that generative AI might impact API development or the API space? I mean, like what I was saying, natural language processing, like, you know, Postman is launching into every company is like, hopefully, hopefully you've already looked into it at least and thinking about how generative AI can help you do your job better. And so we're talking about, you know, open API being a very machine readable format to kind of like understand the guts of this service and understand the guts out of this service and being able to glue them together. So like, you know, we're like Postman is taking two major trends. One is low code and one is generative AI and like smashing them together. And if we can say like, hmm, let's take that Twilio API, notify myself when this happens with my bank account or something, and just being able to imagine it and then have it happen and then being able to like deploy it on a cloud somewhere, you've written what would have taken a developer X amount of hours like a month ago. Right. Yeah. So a lot of it could be, you know, sort of the stitching work that we tend to do as developers of, you know, stitching this API together with this API and then, you know, transposing data and presumably creating some sort of UI to that. Essentially, we might be able to just describe what we need of like, hey, I want to send a message to Tulio and then I want to send the response over to this thing. And then like, let's have them go through Stripe payment or, but then you need to know the landscape of essentially the technologies that are available to you and how those workflows would go together. It doesn't take away essentially the knowledge that you need. It just takes away some of the the rote work of, you know, essentially pushing and pulling data. And I think there's still some work to be done because it's not like we haven't had tools that allow us to do something like that in some fashion or another. You know, we've had the Zapiers, we've had the ifs. And if you knew about these two platforms and you were able to glue them together with a simple like if then statement, 
how come more non-developers, I think those platforms are being used extensively by developers or people that even have a little bit of knowledge, but the lay people aren't using those platforms. And why is that? Yeah. And I think you see the same thing with a lot of the like no code types of tools that, you know, there's back when, you know, I was a researcher, there was a lot of people that spent time trying to, you know, have essentially this vision that anybody would be able to like, you know, program applications. And there is some of that, you know, I think even going back 10 plus years ago, there are AI systems out there that exist to generate a website based on some sort of non-technical description of what you need. But what ends up happening with a lot of those systems is that what they generate is maybe good as a proof of concept or as a demo, but then the amount of work that it takes to customize it takes real engineering work to get it to something that's like a real product or, you know, even a real web page that's going to serve your business. Yeah. So in the short term, I mean, if it can get you that proof of concept, like super quick, and then you can iterate on it before passing it off to like a more experienced developer, I think that's even exciting on its own. Yeah, exactly. Even if you take it as sort of the analogy of like writing content, it's much easier to edit content than the essentially, you know, create it from scratch. And I would say the same thing could apply to some forms of engineering is if you can essentially start with something, some base representation of what you need, then someone who's more experienced can come along and sort of massage it into something that's going to work. But all of this is happening too fast. I cannot keep up. People are so entrepreneurial and hopping on this trend that it is... I mean, gosh, it's, I'm sure every single one of your podcasts is like touches on this at some point or another, but it's just chilling. Yeah. It really reminds me of the explosion of, we've already mentioned how much older and, you know, grizzled <laughs> I am in my time, you know, working in industry, but it reminds me of the early days of the internet where there was just such an explosion of all these guys. And now that was moving at a glacial speed, I think, in comparison to what we're seeing in Gen AI, but in terms of just every company in the world sort of being interested or fearing this thing. Like it's just, everybody is kind of like thinking about what is my AI strategy or I don't even know what this thing is, but I know I need to be on it. Everybody's essentially consumed by this at this point. Yeah. And like, I think chat GPT, oh, I'm going to misquote this stat, but they got to a million, a million users in five days as being the quickest adoption ever for any kind of like technological platform. So you're comparing the growth of generative AI to the initial growth of the internet, where it really captured the imagination of the individual users, but not everyone had a phone, not everyone had a computer, internet service. And now the infrastructure is all laid out there. We're already using the tools we want. And now we can just layer on generative AI into the tools that we're already using with the infrastructure that we already have built. Yeah, exactly. We're set up for essentially this like, scale that and even like things like social media yeah, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, yeah even things like social media didn't exist for the spread of awareness of these things you know 15 years ago like they do today so outside of the gen ai space are there other sort of you know what's going on in terms of api technology innovation is rest and json still kind of leading the way out there oh heck yes i think anytime there's i mean it's the difference between greenfield and brownfield right so startups will be able to innovate so much faster than uh, huge honking companies. There's too much tech debt for them to spin on a dime. Even if they were to scrap everything and immediately transition, like, first of all, there's no way they could do that. REST is still the top format when it comes to API communication. I talked about other protocols for IoT, right? So do you have a wearable on you at this point in time? Do you have a digital assistant right now? So connected homes and all of those protocols, I think, are pretty interesting. And it's very different 
If you're in an enterprise IoT development team, you're going to be talking, like maybe you don't even know about REST, right? Maybe you don't even know about the types of web APIs that we're talking about. It's very, very different. Your workflow is different. Your tool chain is different. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, so I guess the types of like tools and support that you need working with those systems is going to be drastically different than like you mentioned, the tool chain that as a web developer or web API developer would be working with. Yeah. And I think there's trends that I don't want to even, I mean, I will mention them just because I can't, I'm just like thinking through like all the different stuff that's impacting, but like, these are trends that have been around for 15, 20 years. And I feel dumb saying it, but like quality security, developer experience, developer experience is like kind of like a little bit of a hot new term, but really people have been talking about it for 15, 20 years. And now it's just kind of people are realizing the value and like the detriment when they don't have a good developer experience and competitions getting tougher because everyone has an API now. So APIs are actually a differentiator in the market now. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you're not talking about API only, like if you have an API that can, again, finance is on my brain, but A, if you have an API, A, if it talks JSON or you can send JSON, like amazing, like kudos. But again, some of these large legacy companies cannot turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're seeing that certainly in like the banking space, for example, like I saw a headline the other day from 2017, which was like JP Morgan's declaration that the public cloud is a thing and they were going to start to move you know workloads to the public cloud. So that was, you know, five, six years ago now. And I'm sure they probably run like a hybrid infrastructure of some on prem and some on the cloud, but it took them five plus years to sort of catch up to like what startups were doing. And that's because just the nature of a, you know, a large company it takes a while to catch up to these innovations that happen. And there's also more risk to taking big bets and essentially adopting something that you know may or may not be successful. And that's another area that you'll see regional differences. So some countries will, I mean, I'm just thinking of like France. France for a really long time didn't allow you to keep data that wasn't like in France, right? So does the cloud provider you're using have like a major data center in France? Great. If not, can't even consider you. And then other underserved regions might be starting from scratch. They haven't had to worry about the legacy concerns that you're mentioning, Sean. And so, you know, they're moving so much faster than some of these other very established regions. Right. Yeah. If you're, you know, operating in Europe and you might have to navigate some challenges around GDPR or data residency requirements, and that could actually impact your speed of innovation if you don't know how to sort of navigate those different things. In terms of API adoption success, so we've talked a little bit about some of these, you know, companies that are successful, the idea of having an API first that are using essentially mainstream technologies, but what are some of the things that you're seeing successful companies do when it comes to APIs that perhaps less successful companies in the space aren't doing? One thing that comes to mind is API first. And unfortunately, I've used it differently and you just said it. And I just want to clarify API first. So I'm talking about API first design and development, not having an API first necessarily. And so that's a very ambiguous term that I just used that is being interpreted very differently by successful and less than successful organizations. And so that is something that if you can get that done right, that will help you scale so much faster. And I'm talking about things like having some sort of standardized schema like open API or whatever you're choosing to use to set guidelines and to allow interoperability between your services. So, you know, another one of the major trends, microservices, right? Or just being able to be composable in your organization. And then how much consistency and interoperability do you have 
while maintaining consistency? Or are you just like spinning up double services, which I know is a strategy for some large organizations? They don't care what you have out there. Just spin it up. If you can be quicker about it, then we have 50 of these services in our organization at this point in time. So you mentioned this as a nuance around the definition of API first. And essentially, your definition of API first is that, or well, the, the definition of API first, is essentially you're designing your API first, and essentially that is ahead of the development of the API itself. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, this could be like a whole podcast on its own, like the definition and the nuance around API first, but correct. Designing and developing your API first And part of design is like gathering feedback from stakeholders or at least thinking about your stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. And future proofing. I think Etsy, Etsy has a really famous example when they were building out their mobile platform. This has like been a long, long time ago, but they literally built a second code base because the first time they built out their APIs, they weren't optimized for what they needed to get done to accommodate a mobile app. So they literally built a second code base. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of companies face that issue, you know, essentially moved into mobile because like mobile wasn't reality essentially before at some until like years later after they already built established APIs within the organization. And if you're building out today, you might not be able to see the next mobile, but you should be able to consider all of the stakeholders that are in your immediate as well as short term. Mm -hmm. All right. As we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? I know this isn't about you, Sean, but I am curious to hear your perspective. I didn't realize you'd been around alive and kicking for so long in the world of tech. I don't mean that in the in a bad way, but what is your perspective? Because I work with, you know, REST and like the main players of APIs day in and day out, but I've only been in for like the last, let's say, decade. But what have you noticed? I mean, I think we touched on a lot of these things. Like, I think the big trend is, and you see the same thing, like my day job is around privacy and security. And I think the big thing that you see that leads to adoption there is essentially simplicity and sort of things working by default, like secure by default. So if you make it easy for people to do the right thing, then they tend to like do it. Otherwise they try to like circumvent it essentially and figure out like, how can I deliver on you know this feature or whatever thing I'm responsible for? And I think you're going to see the same thing in APIs. And I think that's why things like REST JSON, and then the combination of those tools plus things like other innovations that came along like Node or other programming languages that make it really easy to interface with those technologies. We just see such an explosion in adoption from those. And I think now the big difference that I see in companies, regardless of the type of company that you're building in the technology space, a lot of times you're starting with essentially thinking about my product as an API, like what is essentially the API interface that we're building to solve this problem or this challenge? That didn't exist 20 years ago when I started starting my career. You know, you were thinking about what is really the UI of the thing that you're building rather than essentially a way of someone sort of taking your problem and plugging into, you know, different spaces. You were thinking about abstracting at that level and making it something that people can kind of plug in and into other software to allow them to innovate. You were just thinking about like, how do I solve this specific problem delivering this sort of shrink wrap piece of software? And I think that's been the big change is it's like a almost like a platform way of thinking about product innovation and product creation that didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah. And I would say like maybe 12, 15 years ago, I can't remember when user experience became a buzzword, right? User experience became really important for the consumer experience. Right. And I think developer experience is becoming that important for developers. So when we're talking about APIs, it really, like if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, how important could DX actually be? 
go try out your product, go try out your API, you know, like just kick the tires fresh from scratch. It makes a huge difference. And then do the same thing for your competitor, because I've heard so many companies nowadays being compared to like this company, but with better DX. Whole companies are being formed based on you have a really good idea there, but you don't know how to do the user experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think in the world of user experience, companies like Box, like one of their innovations was they basically took consumer grade user experience and they applied it to businesses. So they were kind of one of the first companies that realized, sure, consumers care about user experience, but so does like the business user, you know, the enterprise customer they're selling to. And that was like one of their big innovations that led to a lot of adoption. And I think now finally enterprises are also recognizing that developer experience is something that also can dramatically impact adoption. And there's research around this, but like most people essentially believe that people can go from nothing to like hello world or whatever that equivalent is, you know, time to 200 or whatever you want to call it in less than 15 minutes. But in studies, almost every API product fails to get somebody through from zero to hello world or to time to 200 in 15 minutes. Like almost every product fails that. But the best companies in the world are able to do that in five minutes under. So that's kind of the competitive landscape that you're looking at when it comes to APIs. I always say that when you have an API product, your competitor isn't necessarily, when it comes to developer experience, isn't necessarily you know whoever is your direct competitor when it comes to sales. When you're talking developer experience, your competitor is companies like a Twilio or Stripe, basically the companies that set the bar for like the best in class developer experience. That's who you're competing against because the developers that are adopting your technology are going to be comparing you to whatever that best experience is. It's just like if you do lines, whatever your company is, your line competitor is Disney because no one does lines better than Disney. And that's the way your thing is. It's essentially not a direct competitor. It's an experienced competitor. Yeah. And like people like you and me, we probably check out a lot of different tech like occasionally here and there. But some of the folks like you're talking about like boxes, business users, they might try to build an integration like a few times a year, maybe, you know. And so the amount of suffering is just magnitudes greater and that much more important for like just losing somebody immediately. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Joyce, thanks so much for being here. This was really, really fun. And I guess I'll see you in a few weeks in Croatia at the Shift Conference. Yeah, sounds good. Look forward to seeing you then. All right. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Bye. 